It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, we know the headlines. The headlines are about a shortage of baby formula. But it's what's behind the headlines. How do we shed some light on some serious structural problems, some leadership issues at the FDA? And how do we make sure we get to the right questions beyond the headlines? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. Over the past two days, Congress has questioned FDA officials on the baby formula shortage during a hearing on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Here to help us break all of that down, Laura Riley is a reporter for The Washington Post covering the business of food. Laura, thanks for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here. Uh, so let's break this down just a little bit. I, everybody knows the headline of this. We, do, we don't have the baby, baby formula that we need. What did we learn about what has actually taken place over the course of these uh, hearings at Capitol Hill? Well, there seemed to be a lot of blame to go around. So clearly everybody's ire is uh, perhaps most profound uh, with Abbott, which is the company in Sturgis, uh, Michigan, that which it's that facility is the largest producer of formula in the U.S. Um, they had a issued a recall in February and then were closed by the FDA shortly thereafter. And so it's the lack of the production there at that facility that has really catapulted us into a perilous situation with with formula availability uh, across the United States. Uh, but in addition to that, there was an awful lot of anger towards the FDA and that they they were perceived as having been flat footed in their response to this. Yeah. And so let's let's dive into both of that. We're equal opportunity offenders here. So all the finger pointing doesn't bother us much because we're going to just keep finding the <laughs> the real answers there. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that came out in your reporting uh, was that there was a whistleblower report on the baby formula that didn't reach uh, the top of the FDA uh, until really late in the game. Well, and some of their rationale for that or their explanation this week was a little jaw-dropping. Um, so Califf, the, the commissioner of the FDA, basically turned in a timeline of who knew what when. And it turns out that some of the FDA's top food safety people were not in receipt of this uh, this whistleblower report for weeks and weeks, in part because of a mailroom problem at the FDA. So, um, unfortunately, the whistleblower turned in this report to a variety of top officials at the agency October 19th and 20th of last year. And he was not interviewed until December, and they did not conduct an additional investigation or inspection of that facility until January. And it, and it closed shortly thereafter. So there was an awful lot of time in between there in which many kids were sickened and two yeah. died. Mm. Wow. Uh, and so 
Uh, as you look at how we, we come out of these, uh, and again, these, these kind of hearings are important, not just so we can you know point fingers and place blame, but more importantly, how we actually move forward on these. Was there anything illuminating over the course of uh, the hearings uh, that actually leads us towards kind of a, a what's next? Yeah, actually, I thought there was a lot of hopeful stuff that came out of it. So first of all, um, Commissioner Califf said multiple times, that once this crisis is averted and, and, you know, kind of store shelves are stocked again, it's an opportunity to reexamine the structure of the FDA in, on the food safety side. Mm. The agency has always been run by medical professionals, usually MDs with, with incredible, uh, you know, resumes in terms of uh, drug oversight and medical devices and all that kind of stuff. But very seldom has there been someone at the top of the agency with a food background. And perhaps this is an indication that, that that's an oversight. Oh, that's uh, that is an interesting thing I hadn't thought about. <laughs> uh, if, if it, if the uh, food comes first in FDA, uh, that's a interesting thing that they haven't had somebody with the food background in there. That's super interesting. Anything else that you picked up over the course of the hearing? Oh, well, so the, the joke at the FDA is that the F is silent. Oh. Uh, and I think that that's, that's uh, so, you know, everyone was a little bit, you know, kind of plugging that old joke at, you know, over the hearings. Um, I mean, it also is a really interesting question about communication between agencies. So the FDA shut this facility down. They should have anticipated that there would be a shortfall. They should have reached out to the USDA, which oversees the WIC program. That's the low income, you know, women and children program. Uh, that really uses the, the recipients on that program use half of the formula in the country. Mm. So there should have been communication between the FDA and the USDA that the USDA was going to have to, you know, hustle to figure out some new sources of formula, especially for those extra vulnerable little kids that are, you know, have metabolic disorders. Um, a lot of those families have not been able to find the stuff they need, you know, period yeah. uh, in recent weeks. Uh, Laura, I love that you've you brought up this whole issue of the siloing of these uh, departments and agencies. Uh, I've seen it in so many different kinds of organizations around the world, uh, and this is just such a uh, a straightforward shot at it. Of just look, here's the issue. But if if this department, if the USDA doesn't know, if they're using half of that formula uh, and they don't know it's coming, uh, of course we're going to have those kind of problems. And again, it just is what happens when you have an organization that gets siloed off. And so often that is what we see with these agencies. Absolutely. But very interesting. So this Operation Fly formula, which has uh, given some flexibilities for domestic producers to ramp up production and then is bringing in formula from all over the world. I just got a, a, a memo just a few minutes ago that there's a load of goat's milk formula that's coming in from Australia in the next little while. So it, it's been interesting to see that this is uh, Health and Human Services FDA, Department of Defense, it's a multi-agency effort to fix this problem pronto. Yeah, that's great. And, that's, and that is what we have to get to. And uh, we can connect the dots. We can connect the dots and solve, uh, solve the problems. Anything else you're looking for in the days ahead as we kind of enter this next phase of, of the now what portion of the program? Well, so thus far, there's been a lot of effort to get formula into the hands of those uh, people who have you know, metabolic disorders, there's been less effort to restock those grocery store shelves. So the most recent out-of-stock figures are still pretty gloomy. Um, and, you know, some of that may be stockpiling, people kind of getting panicked that they're not going to have enough. 
but I, I think that that needs to be a priority in, in coming weeks uh, to really just get that stuff back in the grocery stores for, you know, the average American trying to feed their families. Yeah, fantastic. Laura Riley's a reporter for The Washington Post uh, covering the business of food. And Laura, great insight, great uh, perspective on all of this and uh, a lot for us to think about and to make sure we don't repeat, not just when it comes to baby formula, but to a host uh, of other things uh, across the government. Really important reporting today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great insight there from Laura Riley from the Washington Post. And uh, I I love that we kind of landed on this idea of silos. Uh, I have seen so many organizations just absolutely collapse and crumble because each of the departments ends up being very siloed. So then all you worry about is your own thing. You're not aware of what's going on. You don't think about communicating across platforms, across agencies, across departments, across teams. And you get this very isolated thinking. And you even get the turf protection, the defensiveness. Uh, And that is the beginning of the end of organizations. And this baby formula is a very clear manifestation of what happens when we allow agencies and government to become siloed as well. Think again with Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.